Welcome to The Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast, hosted by Collegium Student Fellows together with senior members of our team. This podcast features interviews with visiting scholars and faculty authors of new work that help us to appreciate the shape of life today, both in its dynamism and in its timelessness. Here we approach the mysteries of reality with wonder, exploring from a wide variety of disciplinary angles, all of which revolve around a core commitment to the unity of truth. Here, authors make the case for how and why their books are important, not just for specialists in their own field, but for all of us inside the university and out who seek wisdom for a life well lived. I'm your host, Lori Ellen Moore, the Fall 2018 Fox Perry Fellow for the Collegium Institute. Today, I have with me Dr. Mary Hirschfeld, a professor of economics at Villanova University. Dr. Hirschfeld has a PhD in economics from Harvard and a PhD in theology from Notre Dame. Her academic work focuses on the boundary between economics and theology. In this episode, we will look at Dr. Hirschfeld's approach in her new book, Aquinas in the Market, Towards a Humane Economy. Dr. Hirschfeld, thank you so much for joining us today. It's completely my pleasure. All right, so things I would like to ask you. Thomas Aquinas lived long before the development of modern economic practices. So how is he relevant to our discussions today? That's a great question to start out with. He lived before we figured out how markets work. So you would think immediately he can't help us on economics and that's how a lot of people think about it. But the big insight I had was that you don't start with the economic questions. You start with your account of the human person, because if you really want to understand how an economy can work in service of human beings, you have to work back. Okay, so how does the economy serve human beings? Well, the economy serves our procurement of wealth, right, material things. So then how do material things serve human beings? So I'm working my way back to an account of happiness, and Aquinas has a great account of happiness. And it's a richer understanding of the human person than a lot of us work with, certainly if you're an economist, than you would work with as an economist. And so I found when I went into the system from that perspective, I could understand a lot and found plenty of room to understand modern economics in light of what he was saying. Excellent. So one of the things you just talked about and something you've discussed is serving the human person and genuine human flourishing. How do we understand what human flourishing is and how happiness works? What do these mean to you? Okay. Obviously, it's a huge question. So if you asked a philosopher, they would have a lot to say about it. And uh, I am not a philosopher. (laughs) I'm an economist who became a theologian. What I can do is just do a contrast between what economists think and then what Aquinas does. Okay. So economists think flourishing is just I have a list of things that I want. Maybe it's a bigger TV and a bigger house. Maybe it's more time with my friends. Maybe it's traveling to Bali. I have a list of things that would be nice to do. And I'm constrained. I don't have as much time as I want. I don't have as much money as I want. So I take my fixed time and my money and I figure out how best to meet my desires. And then happiness is having as many desires met as I can get, right? So that's an account of happiness, basically getting what you want. Aquinas is going to come back and say, well, come on, think about it. You don't always know what you want. A lot of times you make mistakes, right? Just go look in your closet at all the things that you used to think you want that you don't want anymore, right? So happiness is not necessarily about getting what you want. It's about figuring out what is good to want and then learning how to want to want it. 
So then how do we think about, so what is this human flourishing that would be good to want? It would be think about who you are as a human person. As a human person, you have an intellect and you have emotions and how can you develop yourself to discern well, make, make discernments between like higher goods and lesser goods? How do you, how do you think about that? Excellent. So one of the things you just talked about and one of the things you're going to consider in your book is what constitutes genuine human flourishing and what does it mean to be happy as a human person? So how does your understanding of Aquinas and economics and human flourishing work together? Okay, that's a great question. So Aquinas is just working out of what the Catholic tradition would say, right? So think about this pen. This pen can't constitute my flourishing because it's just this material object, right? But it's helpful because it lets me do something like write. So the flourishing comes when we kind of go up that ladder of things. So it helps me write. What is it helping me write? Maybe I'm writing a letter to you, right? The part of human flourishing that it's servicing is our, our relationship together. Uh, and the general idea is, is genuine human flourishing are, are those higher goods that I think we would all agree on. So being healthy, having good relationships, learning how to discern the world better so you can see what's really good, see what's really beautiful, see what's really true. Even a utilitarian like John Stuart Mill would say, look, clearly throwing darts is a fun game, but being able to appreciate Latin poetry is a higher good, right? So anyway, genuine flourishing is pursuing human excellence, community, worshiping God, that sort of thing. Even though people think that we all disagree about what would constitute human flourishing, I think it's an attractive view that a lot of people share, not just from within a religious perspective. Excellent. Thank you. So with the idea of economics, many people, experts and non-experts in the economic field, as well as some theologians, have turned to Marx for a more humane understanding and just conception of economics and economic justice. So how do you see Aquinas's understanding as consistent with serving justice and creating a humane economy, especially in light of the fact that he promotes private property in a way that Marx does not? Yeah. So I think actually Aquinas is better for serving human interest than Marx. So Marx has the insight that we don't want a world where I'm a really rich person, I grabbed up all the property and you have no property, and so the only way you can survive is by working for me, and then I exploit you and treat you badly. And so, and Marx is good at saying exploitation, bad. What he misses, though, is some account of the fact that human agency is expressed through the things that we own. And the Catholic tradition has always said this. So the Catholic position has always taken this third way. How do I put this? So, and of course, it's not fair to blame Marx on this, but when you try to live out Marx's principles, you get into socialism or collective ownership. And they always end up being very, rather brutal, unhuman things. Because if I collectivize, then you have all sorts of natural human problems, like who's going to go work? How are we going to distribute the things? So what Aquinas says is, hey, we're finite, right? So if I'm a central planner, I'm imagining I have an infinite view of everything and I can figure out how everything works. And Aquinas is like, no, 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 no. You're a finite person. So if I give you a finite piece of property and you're in charge of cultivating it, you know that it's really good for rutabagas and really not good for mushrooms. You can figure that out. So you get to cultivate your own expertise, exercise your own human agency as a co-creator with the world. And the virtue of private property is it tells you in the morning, what do you get up and do? You go work on your rutabaga field. And it tells me, what do I do in the morning? I get up and go work on my mushroom field, right? It gives everybody space for their human agency. Then the question is, okay, so 
private property seems to be fitting to human nature for these sorts of reasons. On the other hand, we're still worried about the grasping exploitative idea that Marx is rebelling against. So, but the view of Aquinas covers that because what he says is, okay, look, I've got my mushroom field. I have that as a way of cultivating my human excellence and I do provide for myself and my family with what I earn from selling my mushrooms. But because I have a good rational understanding of how much I need, which is not indefinite, so I know that I need to make say $80,000 a year to be okay and take care of my family. If I have a bumper crop of mushrooms, that means I have a lot of extra cash or wealth that I am then willing to help you out. If you had a bad rutabaga year, maybe I help you out this year and the next year maybe we flop around. So even though I have private property, it's still ordered to the common good. So I take care of myself, but I also take care of others out of what I own. So it seems to cover both senses, like private property is good to a point. And again, this has always been Catholic teaching. Excellent. So another thing Aquinas discusses that is very much in line with this is a difference between natural wealth and artificial wealth. So is this distinction important in what you have just discussed? And if so, what implications does it have? Yeah, so this is hugely important. And he gets this distinction from Aristotle. So natural wealth would be food, clothing, medicine, sort of the basic things that you use in order to sustain material to support your life, right? And if you think about it, those things you have need of in a finite amount, right? So you need so much to eat. You need so much to be clothed. You need so much to be sheltered, right? So natural wealth is material goods that are ordered to serving human beings, their bodies, and also allowing them to cultivate their higher pursuits. The key thing about natural wealth is it's bounded. And I always use this example. Your desire for natural wealth, you should think about it exactly the way you think about medicine. So how do you think about medicine? If you have a headache and the bottle says you need two aspirin to fix your headache, you want two aspirin, right? And when you get the two aspirin, you're like, yay, no more headache. And then if I came along and said, well, I can give you 20 aspirin, you'd like, well, that's 18 extra aspirin that are kind of surplus for me to give away because I have the two that I need. And the idea is you should think exactly the same thing about wealth. It's not the case that you and I are going to necessarily have the same amount. Maybe your headache takes two aspirin and mine takes three, right? Same thing with wealth. I'm a scholar. I don't need as much money. If I was a business leader and I have to do a lot more socializing in order to cultivate clients or whatnot. The business guy might need $150,000 a year to live his life well. I maybe need $80,000 a year to live well. The key thing is we're thinking about natural terms so we have some idea about when our finite needs are met and we're happy with that. Artificial wealth has two meanings. First of all, he means natural wealth is just the stuff that you buy, the clothes, the food, all the rest of it. Artificial wealth is the money you use to buy it with, right? So artificial wealth would be money, stocks, bonds, all those financial assets. And everybody understands that the only reason you want those financial assets is so that you could buy the goods that they're used to purchase. But then he makes this next connection, which is, and this artificial wealth, once we start thinking about it primarily, seems to cause us to have a disordered relationship with natural wealth. So he uses artificial wealth also to refer to this disordered idea of natural wealth. And the disordered idea, we're going to call it artificial wealth. If I start pursuing artificial wealth, it's unbounded. Because think about it, if I'm pursuing money, 
I can have $10,000 a year, $100,000 a year, a million dollars a year. And it always seems like if you add another zero, I just got a lot better off, right? And it just, it, it's a quantitative measure that just keeps going. And if I start thinking in those terms, I might also start thinking in terms of my desire for things in the same way. So I might go from thinking, well, I have a 2,000 square foot house. That's really nice, but 3,000 would be better. And then I get my 3,000 square foot house and I think 4,000 would be better. And what you end up with is an idea that more is always better. And what I'd like you to notice is that's the modern American mindset. Problem with that mindset is as long as I think more will always make me better off, I'm going to be anxious about striving for more money all the time. But also if it comes to the question of social justice and I want to try to be fair to you, it seems like it comes at my expense one way or the other. And so there's going to be tensions along that. Excellent. The next question I was going to ask is how does this understanding of natural and artificial wealth and our own private property differ from the modern understanding? So that's perfect. Is there anything else you'd want to elaborate on there or shall we move on to the next question? Just to nail down the point. So when we talk about private property, we think maybe Marx has an attractive idea about it. We're thinking about the modern sense, which is I have my mushroom field and I make as much money as I can for myself, right? And if I can expand production and take up a whole lot of the land and you happen to got squeezed out, you're going to run into economic inequality a lot faster if we think about it with this idea that more is always better, right? That I'm going to use private property in order to expand my reach. And while economists have a story that us all trying to expand our reach can produce economic growth, and they're not wrong about that, it also leads to the kinds of tensions that Karl Marx is addressing. So one of the things your book and your views seem to stress is the value of virtue when approaching economic issues such as economic justice. One of the chapters in your book discusses prudence. And can you elaborate for me on both your conception of prudence and how this relates to our ideas of humane economies and economic justice? Yeah, it might be hard to do this in a podcast setting. This is kind of the centerpiece of what I do. Okay. So... (laughs) So point number one, um, prudence to us sounds like calculating a prudential person is a cautious person, a careful person. And in Aquinas, prudence has a much larger meaning. So a friend of mine who also works in this area prefers to use the word practical wisdom. And I think he's right about that. His name is Andy Younger, by the way. He's awesome. So if we think about this as practical wisdom, which is what I'm really talking about, practical wisdom is how do I make my decisions? The emphasis on wisdom is to say it's not a matter of calculation. So an economist would say, how do you make your decision? Well, you have your list of things that you want, and you just do a mathematical calculation about how to deploy your wealth and your time in order to maximize the happiness you can get by going up your list. Okay, so it's a calculation. And that's rationality. That's like the rational choice model. To emphasize practical wisdom is to say no. It's about, A, discerning what it is I want, not just taking my list for granted, but like reflecting on what what do I really want in life, what's really good for me. And then coming back to your finitude, my finitude, like I'm a finite person. I really don't want a 6,000 square foot house because big, lots of things to dust, kind of (laughs) silly, but rather of the various goods that I could imagine having in my life, what are the ones that I could put together through this discernment of wisdom, it's put together in a way that's balanced, that makes a whole lot of my life. So it's thinking about making your decisions more like an artist than a mathematical calculator. 
And if you think about it, if I'm a painter, I have to decide how to balance a few, like how do I put the red cloak in here with the blue bell and how do I balance that and arrange it harmoniously. And I'm working on coming up with a beautiful picture and I would want to think about my life the same way. And then once I have that idea that that's what I'm doing, you can really easily see my point about wealth. If I'm trying to make a beautiful painting, is it made better by having a lot more paint on hand to throw at the canvas? And the answer is clearly no. If I start throwing as more paint on it, it's going to be disordered and untidy, right? So it's more about the discernment. So it goes back to that idea of finitude, of having a set of desires that can be satiated. And all of that allows me to keep money in service of my life as a human being rather than if I think of it as calculating and trying to get the biggest bang for my buck and all the rest of it, then my life is all about that calculation and I end up serving money a lot more than I'm serving my actual life. So talking about the finite nature of everyone, it seems that there's a thought that there should be a sort of upper limitation on the consumptions that you have. And my question is, how can this practically be applied to our lives? And is there a role that Christianity, other religion, community should play in facilitating this? Yeah, now that's a great question. So I am hardly the only person to notice that because we have this open-ended idea of what we want, we end up getting trapped in a rat race of just chasing after it forever. I'm 57 years old, but it seems like every decade somebody comes along with a new movement towards let's be let's simplify our lives, let's go back to basics, let's get away from all this materialism and this rat race. So there's a natural human inclination to want to get back to a good perspective with wealth, but it always seems to founder. And the reason it founders is because we live in a society where everybody is trying to push for that one extra thing, right? Everybody wants a little bit bigger house, a little bit more in their closet, a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that. And we put a lot of social pressure on each other when we do that. So even if I have good ideas about wanting to have a finite amount that I know I'm happy with, if my neighbors keep getting bigger and having more stuff, it's hard for me not to go along with them. Religion can help, I think. An idea I unfold a lot in my book is that I'm going to be able to better appreciate the finite goods I have if I understand that what I really want is God who is infinite and don't try to seek my ultimate good in stuff, but rather through conversation with human beings, through worshiping God, these other things that can bear the infinite desires I have better than a larger TV screen can bear them. So religion helps. I don't know that it's necessary because lots of pagans have had the same ideals. They can see the goodness of wanting to have money in its proper place. But community would help a lot, right? So it's going to be a lot easier for me to get a reasonable idea about what a good standard of living would be if my neighbors are also doing the same thing. Because if I don't do that, then I can be sitting there trying to live a good, finite life. And then all of a sudden, my kid needs to go to the prom. And all the other kids going to the prom are going in limousines with, you know, $3,000 dresses. And now I have to do that for my kid, whether I think that's a rational thing or not. Just to do so communities help. Excellent. Thinking now more on a scholarly track. What distinguishes your work from other scholars who are writing on Aquinas? What makes your views so interesting and new? <laughs> and different. <laughs> and yeah. different, yes. There's a million wonderful, wonderful, wonderful scholars about Aquinas. I do not count myself as one of them. Aquinas is deep and rich, and you can spend all your life just reading his text and parsing it and understanding it better. Um, but I was originally trained as an economist, and this is the strength I bring to 
to what I do. Um, I take a basic understanding of Aquinas kind of as a model the way an economist would and use that to think through what economics would look like in those terms. So very few scholars of Thomas are also economists. So my value added, to use an economic term, (laughs) my value (laughs) added is on bringing this intersection together in a way that is hopefully helpful. And how did you move from the economist to the theologian? That's such an interesting and traditionally very opposite areas of study. So what interested you in bringing these together? So biography. So we don't need to go into this great deal of detail. When I went into economics, I was at the time an agnostic, spiritual, but not religious type, kind of a practicing pagan in Los Angeles. And I was already kind of unhappy with economics, but I didn't know what to do with it because I didn't feel like economics was really telling me about how to be happy. Anyway, I had this unexpected conversion to Catholicism, and it really came out of the blue. It was the last thing in the world I ever expected to have happen to me, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And I found the Catholic tradition just had all these wonderful things to say about how to grow in your life and how to... I felt like all of a sudden I had a path towards happiness. So my first thought was, A, go to a monastery and just pray to God for the rest of my life. But I didn't quite feel called to doing that. So I thought, well, I'll just quit my job and go study theology. And my plan had been just to leave the economics behind and just go study theology because, you know, I wanted the spiritual wisdom that you get by studying theology. But I'm an economist. I can't shake that off. And and everybody heard my background. They're like, well, what do you think about just wages and usury? And for reasons that we might want to talk about, I didn't have anything to say about them. The way an economist would think about them, very different from the way a theologian would think about them. And I didn't even want anything to do with it. I did feel compelled to want to bring economics into conversation with theology, mostly because theologians don't understand economics at all, and I felt like I could push it back. And then, and then when I was working with Aquinas, I got this big insight that, oh, if you don't start with usury, but rather start with happiness, everything falls out. So that's how I got to where I am. Fascinating. I love, love cool stories that bring things together. Maybe it's partially the classicist in me, but I love when things intersect. Yeah. So thinking about usury and just wages here, you start off with the idea of human happiness, but these questions are obviously forefront in the minds of the public when thinking about economic justice. So are these questions that are still important and do they still need to be resolved within your approach? And if so, how do you think Aquinas's views might go about trying to address these issues? Partly I'm gonna wanna dodge. Usury is very hard. (laughs) And I don't necessarily have a good answer about that. And just wages are not much easier. They're also complicated. But the first move I always want to make on this is to say, the very fact that you want to talk about economic justice, like fair wages, just wages, that sort of thing, the very fact that you want to talk about usury and think that's really important, that kind of reflects this modern mentality we have that says money is what matters. And it prioritizes it in a way. And then the quarrel is money is what really matters. And so the really big issue is how do we share, you know, how do we make sure everybody's treated fairly with it? And as long as you keep all of that apparatus that says money is the ultimate thing that matters, I think you're going to have a hard time actually getting to economic justice. Because even if I'm good willed and want to go fight for a minimum wage or whatever, 
at the end of the day, it's probably going to come at my expense, and not very many people are really going to make that fight very hard. That is to say, there might be a fair amount of virtue signaling going on there, because I haven't really looked at what it would mean for me to retrench my own life. And here's a concrete way to see it. If you give me an hour of your time, I should give you an hour of my time. That would be a just exchange. And you can make a few adjustments for the fact that I have a lot of training, and maybe you don't, but there should be some kind of rough equivalence. And the market's not always going to catch that. But if I hire somebody to clean my house, I pay them an hour's worth of my wage, not an hour's worth of the market wage. If people did that across the board, it would materially cut your standard of living for a person who's a relatively affluent American. So I just, I just say that to say, when people are railing about economic justice, they haven't really thought very hard about the amount of stuff that they need in their lives or think that they need in their lives, which is why I go to that first. I wanted to open up space to make it possible for people to approach these differently. And the other reason why you don't want to start with either fair wages or usury is because you can't know what justice is until you know what purpose these economic goods serve. And for that, you need to have that fuller account of human happiness and flourishing. Excellent. I think that's a very fair answer. So I don't think you dodged at all. So with this book, you're writing for many different audiences, economists, theologians, and possibly the general public. Hopefully you all will give this book a chance. It's going to be wonderful. So given that, what do you hope to achieve with this intended readership? There's been an audience problem with this book since the minute I started writing it. Am I writing to economists? Am I writing to theologians? I have tried to write a book that's accessible to both. So I want theologians to understand that markets work, that there actually is a place where they fit into human life, where private property, properly understood, actually does serve human flourishing. Non-economists often make very naive criticisms of economics, and I want them to make better criticisms of economics so that they can be heard, which would mean taking into account the things that economics gets right, like how markets work. At the same time, economists have an exaggerated sense of what they understand. So they have an account of rationality that they think is rational. They're assuming an account of happiness that they think works, and I want to call into question both of those things. So what I want to say to economists is, your techniques are very good for explaining how humans actually behave in a world that has this screwed up idea about what how important material things are. But A, the discipline of economics is shaping the world to be that way. And B, that's not a good way to actually achieve actual happiness. So I'm trying to open up these two conversations at the same time and try to make it accessible to everybody, which is a challenge. Excellent. And if you had a major takeaway you would want the audience to get from the conversation we've had here, uh, is there a 30-second, one-minute takeaway that you want them to glean from everything you've talked about today. Put economics in its place. It's important, but it should be in service of what your life is really about, right? So think first about what's really important, and then think about how economics can serve that. And then maybe try to be honest and notice how often you're actually letting your life serve the economics. But mostly it's just about getting the ordering right. And I've gotten to work with this material for a decade now. And it's like a conversion process to start to see things in terms of the human reality rather than the economic reality. So get started, because it, it actually is liberating. Like to the extent that I actually live according to my own precepts, it's liberating to not worry about whether I get another raise this year or not, because I don't need one. And it's enhancing to look at the goods I have, and instead of thinking, gee, I'd like a little bit more, but rather to go, wow, this is really nice. It's just a better way of living. So get the order right. That's my message. 
All right. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Hirschfeld. This has been a wonderful conversation, and I hope you, our audience, have enjoyed it. Feel free to check out our website at Collegium and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you so much, and we will check in with you next time. You've been listening to The Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes. And to stay up to date on upcoming events and programming, visit collegiuminstitute.org.